open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We are going to pick up that last verse in verse 26, and we're going to read through uh, chapter 6, verse 10 for our text this morning. Now, one of the uh, classes that I had to take in seminary was one about church history. Um, And I'll be honest with you, I think everybody who is a Christian should take a class in church history. It is intriguing stuff. You hear about the stories of how the church was, you know, on the the rocks of heresy and falling apart. You hear about these people who were martyred and all that kind of stuff. It's 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 intriguing stuff. But then you get to learn about specific people. And there's a group, uh, a time period in the early uh, portion of the church, which uh, was called the Desert Fathers, a group of of early men who were kind of dedicated in their faith and they were kind of ascetics they they kind of they were men who tried to do without so that they could focus their eyes on christ there's one very intriguing man his name is simon the stylite it has nothing to do with his style um i'm sure he was a fashionable man but i think his wardrobe would have been quite uh, reduced because in 423 A.D., he constructed a short pillar on the edge of the desert. And this short pillar was was constructed because he wanted to climb on top of that pillar, and there he found himself living for some 37 years. 37 years. I'm sure there were bathroom breaks. I'm sure there was times to get off for food, but he, he used that pillar because he, he wanted to stay there because he thought that doing that, he would be able to commune with God in solitude. He, he would be able to be free from all worldly distractions by finding himself in one spot by himself. Living on top of a pillar was his way of trying to do it, of being focused. And it's really kind of a, a desire for all of us as well, right? We kind of want to have this desire of, I want to I be true to Jesus. I want to remove all distractions. I want to just remove all pains and things. And if I could just build myself a house where there was no problem, circle myself around with all kinds of posters about Jesus, and just have Christian music going all the time, and just focus on Jesus. That's what I want to do. And that's kind of what Simon the Stylite was trying to do. So we're coming to the end of this this book of the Galatians, and one of the issues that we have to do, uh, that we have to deal with, is what does it look like for you and for me, for us, to be transformed, to be changed by the gospel? The reason I bring up Simon the Stylite was, is because we need a picture of what it really looks like to be transformed by the gospel. No disrespect meant to Simon the Stylite, but I think the Apostle Paul has a far better picture of what it looks like 
to be changed by the gospel. So my friends, would you please stand for the reading of God's word. Galatians 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking uh, one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows in his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. If we do not give up. So then. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are in the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you have been with us through this series, you will have felt Paul just kind of hammering in kind of hammering in on us with the gospel. Week in and week out, he kind of has a way of like a parent kind of being repetitive. Again, pick up your sock. Again, pick up the sock. Again, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Pick up your socks. Pick up your socks. It's kind of this. Paul has this way, too, with the gospel, just kind of hammering in. And with Paul, he kind of has two different nutshells that he is kind of hammering in week after week throughout this whole epistle. And the first one is this. Jesus plus nothing equals acceptance with God. That's it. Never add anything to Jesus. Because you cannot add to Jesus without subtracting from him. Jesus plus nothing. Nothing equals acceptance with God. And that, my friends, is the gospel. You do not contribute anything to to God, to the gospel, to be acceptable by God. Jesus was enough. And Paul reminds us week after week after week, hey, don't add to the gospel. And if you try, you're going to take away from Jesus. But that's not it. Paul gives us another nutshell. And this is the second nutshell. When you get the gospel, when you understand the gospel, when you've been transformed by the gospel, you will be free. 
But freedom isn't living however you want to. It's not the freedom that the world says you can have. No, freedom is living in the power of the Holy Spirit to love God, to serve God, to love your neighbor, and to serve your neighbor. That's everything that Paul has covered up to this point. Jesus plus nothing is equal to acceptance. And you're free. Free to love God. Free to love your neighbor. But we still have got to figure out, and this is kind of the me, I always, um, always want to kind of like, okay, so what? Right? Kind of get to the point of application. So how do I apply this Jesus plus nothing equals acceptance, and I am free. How do I apply those two things? And what does it really look like? And that's what Paul is going to be showing us today. How do you do this? So let me give you the one, a one sentence that kind of captures what Paul is going to tell us. Paul says, the gospel frees us to love others. The gospel frees us to love others. We need a picture of someone who has been transformed by the gospel, who understands the message of the Galatians. And Paul gives us one. And it's not somebody who lived on top of a pillar for some 37 years. No, what he, he is going to give us a picture of someone who has been freed by the gospel to love others. And specifically, he's going to give us two kind of broad categories of what this really looks like. First, he says, the gospel frees us to love others spiritually. And then he says, the gospel frees us to love others financially. The gospel frees us to love others spiritually. The gospel loves us to... The gospel frees us to love others financially. So first, the first point. And let me know, let me tell you, um, it's going to kind of grow in, um, as I studied this, I kind of had this tightening feeling like the air is getting sucked out of my room, of my comfortable room. You know, like, <gasps> it gets tighter as you go on because loving people spiritually, okay, I can do that because that's safe, right? Loving people financially starts moving to the place of, but that's mine. And that starts forcing me to ask questions. So just get ready for this kind of movement. So Galatians 5, 29 through 25 does this. He, Paul says, listen, let's not become conceited. Let's not be provoking one another. Let's not be envying one another. And then Paul says, brothers, listen, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of, what was that word again? Gentleness. Restore that person with a spirit of gentleness. Ke keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear with one another, one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then, and then, his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For the one, for each one will have to bear his own burden. Notice what Paul assumes here in this section. First, 
Paul assumes that the Christian living is going to be lived in relationship to other people. Your Christian life is not a solitary life. Your Christian life is always in conjunction with others. And if you are not in conjunction and relationship, and I will even go so far, if you are not a part of a local church, you are missing what Paul is saying. And here's, so we are created for relationship. And and I love Sunday mornings. um, As the pastor hat, the pastor's side of me lives for Sunday mornings. I love our worship services. I love what I experience as I enter kind of into this throne room of God and I have communed with God. I love, there are some Sunday mornings where I just go home, honey, that was amazing. Did you, you you kind of walk out with a church buzz. That was so good. It, It filled my soul. And then there are some Sunday mornings within minutes of having these heights of communion with God that I have a conversation with you. I, of course, I'm not talking with about any of you, but I'm talking about you. I have a conversation with you, and I am totally derailed. You, you're frustrated, and you're, you're, you're ticked off, or uh, this isn't happening the way it's supposed to be, or my mom said this, or my dad, or my husband, or my wife, or my children, and I, I am totally derailed in that moment, and Paul is saying, uh-huh. Your Christian life is not, Paul, being about living alone in your own perfect little Christian bubble solitude moment, me and you, you know, just me and God. No. You are living in community. You must be living in community. That is how I have wired you. So Paul assumes that I am talking to people who are already living in community. And so my challenge to you is consider, how am I growing in Christian community, particularly here with one another? Because Paul is assuming that we are growing in love and connectivity with one another. But second, Paul also assumes that this kind of thing, this kind of community, this kind of interconnectedness is going to be challenging. Notice what he says. He says, don't be conceited. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy. Why does he say these things? Because those are the things that we are all tempted to do when we are in relationship with one another. When we are connected with one another, we tend to have a a proclivity to be conceited. We also have a a tendency to be envious. We also have a way of provoking one another. And if the Christian life is going to be lived in relationship, these are issues that every one of us is going to be facing. Every one of us. We're going to be tempted to think that we're better than others. We're a little bit more spiritual. Did you... Did you hear how they, did you see how they handled their kids? Did you see that relationship? Did you see that interchange? And we start thinking that we are more spiritual or we are better than others. 
we're going to be tempted to envy other people and their relationships, their finances, the way their kids behave. We're going to be envious. We're going to find ourselves encountering these dangers because we are in relationships. But we are also going to, Paul is also assuming the people we're in relationships are going to have problems. Now, some of you are immediately going, yeah, have you met these people? Have you met my spouse? Have you met my kids? Have you met my grandkids? Have you met the people in my missional community? Have you met the people that I do ministry with? <laughs> They've got problems. Just so you know, they're all pointing right back to you. Paul is assuming that everyone that you are going to encounter is going to have problems. And what we when we encounter these problems, we can't say their problems are not my problems. We cannot say their problems are not my problems. That's why Paul says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So here's what Paul is saying. My sin, my sin is not just my business. Your sin is not just your business. Do you understand that? Do you understand how deep and how messy it suddenly gets when, when that changes? Instead of being arrogant or, or irritating or envious of others, we are to look out for each other. We are to become aware. And when we become aware of someone else's sin in their lives, we should speak privately with them and gently towards them in order to restore their fellowship with each other and their fellowship with Christ. That's where it gets messy, right? How do we do that? Because it, it's not even just the, how we do that here. It's how we do that in our families, in our marriages. Instead of just <laughs> having an explosive moment, we, we who are spiritual should be, hey, let, let's have a, a conversation about what's going on. Because I want to restore this fellowship that we have right here. I want to restore this here. And I want let's do this gently, lovingly. And that's why the fourth thing that we see Paul assuming, that we should do it from a position of humility. Paul stresses here the importance of keeping your own affairs in order with God, watching out for the condition of even your own soul and your sin issues in your life. Why? Because you are not in isolation. You are not better than anyone else. If the church could get that right, you are not better than anyone else. You, too, have, may, will fall. Know that, every one of you. So if you've got a pompous horse to ride, shoot it. Because it serves you no good. It serves you no good. 
Because when you ride that pompous horse, you will drag others with you. You'll take them down. You'll ride over them. And Paul says, for each one of you has your own burdens to bear. You've got, you, you got to bear your own load. You've got stuff to deal with. And here, there's the paradox, right? Paul says, when it comes to other people, their problems are your problems. And you should offer to help. But when it comes to yourself, you must take responsibility for your own actions. So what does the gospel look like when it's all fleshed out? It looks like this. Loving others spiritually. Making their problems our problems. All the while keeping watch over your own life so that you do not negatively affect other people. Ordered a book from Amazon. Started reading it. It's by a guy named Sebastian Junger who... uh, followed a single platoon of U.S. soldiers stationed in the most dangerous area of Afghanistan. So he was a photojournalist, or he was a journalist who came with also, also photojournalists. And what he discovered was living and working in the midst of a war zone made him realize how much the soldiers had to rely on each other. They were all deeply reliant on each other. What you do or don't do as a soldier affects everybody else in the platoon. He wrote this in in one section. Margins were so small and errors potentially so catastrophic that every soldier had a kind of de facto authority to reprimand others. In some case, cases, even officers. Hmm. And because combat can hinge on small details, there was nothing in the soldier's daily routine that fell outside of the group's purview. Whether you tied your shoes or cleaned your weapon or drank enough water or secured your night vision gear were all matters of public concern And we're so open to public scrutiny. He writes, once I watched a private accost another private whose bootlaces were trailing on the ground. Not that he cared what it looked like, but if something happened out there, and out there everything happens suddenly, the guy with the loose loose laces could not be counted on to keep his feet at a crucial moment. It was the other man's life he was risking, not just his own. There was so much, uh, there was no such thing as personal safety out there. What happened to you happened to everyone. Friends, that's what this is about. What happens to you happens to me. What happens to me happens to you. So do you want to know what gospel 
transformed living looks like? It looks like spiritually loving one another, spiritually caring, spiritually diving into each other's lives and gently restoring each other through conversations, loving conversations and saying, I'm concerned. I see this. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm really not. But in light of the gospel, we both know what scripture says. Brother, sister, I love you in the Lord. Stop it. Return to Christ. But Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, just love each other spiritually. He gets into squishy spots. The gospel, number two, frees us to love others financially. This is where it starts getting a little bit more convicting. Verses 6 through 10 say, let the one who is taught the word share all good things. Don't be, don't be uh, conceited, blah, blah, blah. It, you know, make sure that if you have an opportunity to really love those who, who are in the household of faith. The main idea of these verses is this. Do good to all people. But then he narrows it down a little bit more, doesn't he? Especially those other believers. This sounds good until you realize that the good that he is talking about is not just spiritual care. It's not just a pat on the butt and just say, hey, you're doing a good job. He is starting to say, listen, the good that I'm talking about is supporting others financially, caring for practical needs in everyday life. Paul says in verse 6 that we are, you should be doing this for your teachers, those who, who preach the gospel so that they can be set free from having to raise money. Instead, they can now invest their time and their energy into ministry. But he also applies this generally to all other people, especially those who are believers. And we are to do this as we are able. God doesn't expect more from us than what we have, but whatever we have, we are to use in service to others. One person by the name of John Brown puts it this way. Christians, therefore, are particularly bound to, good to do good to one another. Every poor and distressed man has a claim on me for pity. And if I can afford it, for active exertion and pecuniary effort or relief. But a poor Christian has a far stronger claim on my feelings, my labors, and my property. He is my brother. Equally interested with myself in the blood and the love of the Redeemer. I expect to spend eternity with him in heaven. He is the representative of my unseen Savior. And he considers everything done to the poor. He, meaning Christ, considers everything done to the poor, afflicted brother, as done to himself. 
for a Christian to be unkind to another Christian is not only wrong, it is monstrous. As I wrote, read that, I began thinking, how is this even possible? How is this even possible? This is so radical. This is so demanding. How am I ever going to have enough for my own needs? If you've ever driven in Chicago, gone on the on-ramps, you are immediately met with a guy who has a sign. If you, if you really have your eyes open in our community, you're going, there are financial needs all around. And Paul is saying, if there is a need, I'm supposed to meet it? As if I am meeting the needs of my unseen Redeemer, Savior? My bank account is going to be empty as I am giving sacrificially to others? Is this what Paul is really saying? And Paul is saying three things. In verse 7, he says, in essence, brothers and sisters, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it's at. This is where it gets tough. You can have these highfalutin theological, biblical ideas up here, but this right here is where it gets messy. God is not fooled by our spiritual pretenses, our ideas up here. This is where the gospel, the gospel has the power to free us and free our hearts and our desires. God knows your heart and your motivations of your heart when it comes to your money. And friends, this is where there's proof in the pudding. How we look at our wallet and go, but I'd love to spend some on Starbucks. I'd love to take my wife out for Mother's Day. I'd like to have a new tie. I'd like to put some gas in there. I'd like to pay a little bit more down on the mortgage. I'd like to. And God says, no, you know what? This is, this is, this is where the gospel, when it transforms you, we're starting to see, are you going to apply it? Or are you going to hold tightly to those financial resources and say, mine? But secondly, Paul says there is an issue of reaping and sowing that is going on here. That there are, are two ways of living life. One is to slow, sow to your flesh. That is, there's, there's, there, this is the way of, of living that is selfish and a way that is stingy. That's one way. And the result is if you keep Sowing that seed of stinginess and selfishness, it is going to lead and you are going to reap corruption in your life. You are a tainted vehicle of the gospel. The other way is to live according to the Spirit. Freely loving, freely serving. And if we do this, we'll reap generosity and Spiritual life and freedom and joy. And which is it that you want in your life? Whatever you sow, you are also going to harvest. 
And some of you, if you're honest about your, your family systems, you've seen it. And you kind of have that. It's like, my parents were frugal. They were crazy about keeping control of their finances. We'll give to the church our 10%, but that's going to be about it. And we're going to serve, and we're going to do what we got to do, but we're going to be stingy with our time, our talents, because we really want some loving family time. We really want to go on that vacation. We really want to do that for us. And you personally are struggling with that because the gospel says you're free. You're free to love others. You're free to serve them. You're free with your finances to, to even use those as tools to serve others. And you're going, I don't know. I don't know. And the gospel says you are going to be free. But not only that, Paul says, listen, you are going to be rewarded in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. One day, we are going to receive, hear from God, well done. Well done for how you have used my resources for my purposes. Every talent that you have been given, every moment that you breathe, air every nickel and dime in your 401k that is reserved for some other time and everything in your savings is not yours it's not those are gifts from god to further his kingdom purposes and some of us need to cut some of those strong, strong ropes that are tied around our time, our time, our talents, our treasures. Some of you are writing checks for $25 a week and you're going, this will keep me safe, but I'm happy with that. And God's going, the gospel has got you. Some of you might write $1,000 a week. You go, I'm good with God. And God's going, hmm. I'm not sure the gospel has got you. Gerald May wrote, I sat briefly with an old dollar bill in my hand, feeling its softness wondering where it had been, what other hands had grasped it or given it, what human toil had earned it, spent it, and earned it again, what small human needs had it fulfilled in its time, was it once stolen, lost, found, had anyone ever noticed it, he goes on to write, for a moment, Money seemed almost like a breath. Like the air that circulates among us all. Continually given and received. Linking us in a deep spiritual intimacy with God and with one another. My friends, the gospel frees us to help each other financially. 
ever blow the doors off of your friends and your neighbors? Allow the gospel to penetrate your most selfish places. And you're going to go, what? Yeah, Jesus freed me to do this, and it has been so much fun. So where's Paul going with all this talk of the gospel? What, what does it look like when the gospel gets hold of your heart and really changes you? What does it look like when you get the fact that Jesus plus nothing equals acceptance with God? What does it look like when you understand that freedom is not living like however you want to be or however you want to live, but it's actually living in the power of the Spirit to love other people. Paul tells us here, the gospel frees us to love other people. It frees us to love others spiritually by getting into the muck and the mire of their life and restoring them. It, it frees us to love other people financially by living generously. One of uh, the goals for uh, our 2020 vision is to be a church that is known for our generosity. Listen, it can't, it can't be me. It's got to be us. We've all got to live these generous lives so that we can give freely as Christ has freely given to us. There, there are initiatives, there are needs in this community that we could financially resource if we only are transformed more deeply by the gospel. I notice there's no amen there. Because it gets uncomfortable, right? Because we don't need this with these folks. God does. And he's saying, giddy up. Get out of debt. Work hard at it. Because those resources that you spent foolishly were meant to be used in crazy, wild, radical, loving, gospelicious kind of ways. And I want you now to be free to serve people, not only spiritually with Bible studies, but I want you to serve people financially. I want you to serve them with your hands. I want blisters on your fingers. I want you to give of your time and your talents to love other people in a thousand different kind of ways. And Missio Dei Church, by the power of the Spirit, we are able to do that. You are able to do this. And the reality is, we can't fake it. This is something that can only happen when we are freed by the Spirit. Only the Spirit can take our hearts, and only the Spirit can change our hearts from the inside out so that we can live this way. It's only when we see the gospel and are joined to Christ that this is even possible. And notice it all starts with verse 1. The first word in verse 1, it's a single word, brothers. It's familial. And when something is deeply familial and loving and healthy, and functional, and growing, and satisfying, that's where it all really starts to happen. 
That's what the gospel, my friends, has made us. These messy people that you're sitting by are not just members of Missio Day Church. They're your brothers and your sisters. These are your moms and your dads, your uncles and your aunts in Christ Jesus. And our elder brother is Jesus himself. There's a whole theology in that, that one word, brothers. Josh Moody, in his book, No Other Gospel, writes this, and I'm going to leave this, and this is my vision, my hope for our church. We are united in our fallenness, covered with dots and marks, but we are also now united in our reception of grace. Until we realize how bad, scarred, broken, and in need of restoration we all are, and just how much grace we have received, the Christian community rightly and truly understood and experienced, I love that word right there, experienced, it's not just understood, it's not just up here, but experienced, the Christian community is an outpost of heaven on earth. That's what you are. You are an outpost of heaven here on earth. Don't think of yourself as anything less. You're an outpost. We are an outpost. A city on a hill. Shining out. Salt and light. Oh, he goes on to say, is an outpost of heaven on earth where we are all brethren with a common father, all restored by a common savior, and all seeking to restore each other. May we be increasingly a part of and foster a grace-filled community. Oh, Lord, may it be true of me. May it be true of you. And may that be true of all of us. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given us your word for our growth. It makes us keenly 